Greetings and welcome to the Destination Goa Trans podcast, bringing in-depth interviews with artists, label people, organizers from the golden age of the 90s to the modern era. My name is Tibus and I'm here with the one and only Simon Peter. Hi, I'm excited to be here. Let's talk about Goa Trans. This is our first episode. Peter, can you tell us a little bit about our podcast? Our aim is to chat about our favorite releases, collect stories of legendary parties and inspirational psychedelic experiences and learn about all the tricks of creating the magical tunes that we all loved. Uh, you want to know about uh, the origins of psychedelic festival culture? How was your favorite album recorded? The secret sauce of the biggest dance floor hits? We are here to ask the movers and shakers of the scene to find out. Tibus, could you introduce our first guest? Sure, our first guest is Billy from Cosmosis. Cosmosis is one of the influential Gotrans acts from the 90s. They released one of the first full-length albums of the genre, titled Cosmology, which is an absolute classic. The project was originally a duo, but the other member, Jeremy, left after the first album and later continued as Laughing Buddha, while Cosmosis became Billy's solo act. Cosmosis released more than a thousand EPs, seven full-length albums, and two collaborative efforts with Quantica and one with Adja. His newest project is Ultravibe, which is with Yanis from Filteria, and their first album is expected later this year. Peter, what is your first memory of Cosmosis? Where did you hear him? I remember... When I started collecting Goa Trends back in the early 2000s, and I was listening to this mixed compilation called The Psychedelic Experience. It's a pretty energetic mix of great trans for shakers uh, from 99. And towards the end of the mix, I heard this heavy guitar riff, which, which blew my mind at the time. The track was In Your Face Part 2, and ever since that, I kept my ears peeled for anything by Cosmosis. Um, when I got into Goa Trans, I also collected vinyls at that time. And I remember that I ordered a package online of used Goa Trans vinyls, and uh, one of them was Cosmology by Cosmosis. I was blown away when I listened to it first, and I'm still listening to that record till this day. Have you ever seen Cosmosis live? Yeah, the last time I saw him at, uh, was at Apsara in August uh, of 2023. It was an awesome gig. Uh, he played uh, for an already hyped up old school crowd on the last day of the festival. And yeah, people were having a blast. It was great. Unfortunately, I couldn't be there. But I heard so many good things about that festival and this uh, live act especially, so I decided to go and see him at uh, Space Safari, where he played a magical retro set, and uh, yeah, I decided at that moment that I want to invite him to this podcast as one of our first guests. We caught up with Billy online and had a chat about his career as a musician from the very beginnings all the way to the present day. Shout out to the guys at Suntrip Records for their support with this. And uh, now you will hear the first part of our pretty lengthy interview in this episode. Welcome to our show, Destination Goa Trans. It's the first episode, actually. Oh, cool. And uh, 
it's an honor to have you here. I think if anybody knows you from your live gigs, they probably know that you're a guitarist and that's how your music musical journey or career in music started, right? So so can you tell a little bit of us uh, about uh, how how you started playing the guitar? How did you start it as a musician? What what were your first inspirations to play music? Hmm. Yeah, well, I won't bore you with the whole history. <laughs> but uh, let me see. Uh, going back to about, let me see. I've been playing in bands since the early 80s. Um, professionally, since... Uh, I can't actually remember that it's been that long ago, but probably 35 years I've been playing professionally. And uh, I was in lots of different bands. I was a session guitarist for a while. Mm -hmm. I played in kind of rock bands, blues bands, jazz bands, pop bands. Uh, I had my own band for quite a long time. Um, trying to make it in the music business, you know, <laughs> and doing just gigs everywhere. And also, while that was going on, I was also in a covers band, another band, with a lot of the same personnel. We, we were in a van driving all over the country playing gigs. That was how I used to earn my living. And then I used to, after that, uh, play in, uh, I was in several different bands at the same time as a floating guitarist, just getting paid per gigs. You know, anybody would pay me to play, you know, or needed a guitarist for X amount of gig or a few shows. And I, I did some, um, some tours in Europe and uh, Australasia doing that kind of stuff. I was mainly playing acid jazz, which was a thing in, in the nineties. Really? He remembers that like mid nineties, um, which is kind of a crop to hip hop rap, bit of jazz and bit of funk. Yeah. So, you know, I've done loads of different types of music and I've been recording for a long time as well. Uh, I, I th it was probably around the mid eighties that I got my first four track recording studio called a, uh, called a Porter studio. Mm -hmm. It's like a four track cassette recorder with a little mixer built in. It was really crap quality, but it was awesome for the time, you know, cause you could, you could multi-track. Yeah. I could, I could play guitar on one track, bass on another, put a drum machine on another one and get a singer and then bounce those tracks over and do a harmony vocal and all that. So it was amazing at the time. So I've been in uh, involved in recording for a long time, but uh, I think it was yeah. So that that's about what I want to lose on about of the early history. Why the guitar? Why not the bass or the drums or not singing? I'm a bit of a crap vocalist. I can hmm. I can hold the tune, but I just don't have a very good voice. I mean, I really wish as a musician I could sing really well, you know. That, that uh, it's the ultimate instrument, I think. But I mean, I can hold a tune and I can sing it, sing a bit, and I've sang live. But I just, you know, some people are born tall. Some people are born with a fantastic physique. You know, some people are born incredibly handsome, but some people are born not very handsome. It's just a fact that uh, you're genetically gifted with the voice or not. You can train what you've got, but if you don't have a really good voice to start with. You know, from my point of view, I think, ah, you know, who wants to hear my wispy little voice? <laughs> I've worked with too many really excellent singers, you know, but, but I have sang on a, on a, a few recordings I've done reasonably lately in the last couple of years, which is, you know, I, I don't only do trance, I mainly do trance and 
electronic music, but I also do other stuff on the side, just for fun mainly. So I do sing on a few things, but no one really wants to hear my voice. <laughs> I'm a better guitar player than I am a singer. And who are your uh, who are your guitar heroes? I, said, I, I suspected one of them is David Gilmore, but who else? Of course. Of course. Absolutely, David Gilmore and Pink Floyd generally. Uh, this is the music I grew up on, that, that, uh, that rock and Led Zeppelin and uh, blues and uh, Pink Floyd and Supertramp and all that. So I met Dave Gilmore in a pub once in London, in a really tiny little pub. And I, I, I went up to him, there was about four people in the bar, and I said, David Gilmore? And he said, yeah. I said, can I buy you a drink? He said, yeah, sure. Well, <laughs> so I bought him a beer and we had a chat. He's such a lovely bloke. <laughs> it was all I could do to not fall on my knees and go, I am not worth it. <laughs> but, you know, lovely bloke. And, uh, yeah, uh, I told him I'd nicked all of his guitar licks. He was completely fine with that. My early guitar here, I was like, you know, there's loads of them. I don't, it's just not really guitar focused, so I won't babble on about all that stuff. But... Uh, Carlos Santana and uh, Dave Gilmore and Hendrix and uh, Jimmy Page and you know those guys, mainly blues players. Stevie Ray Vaughan as well, in particular. Nice. And um, you mentioned that uh, you basically were the session guitarist in the late eighties. Um, yeah. I wanted to find recordings with you, and I went to Discogs and I dig really deep. But the only band I could find. Their name was UTE, or I'm not sure if there's a sound. Yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. yeah. Are there others? Yeah, I mean, I, I was hired by those guys, yeah. Um, but when I say session guitarist, I was m more of a kind of, uh, I was just hired for live stuff, really. A few, a few recording sessions, but by that time, the sampler was just coming in. And so what nobody it really killed off the whole session business, really, because no one can be bothered to hire a guitarist because you could just buy your, your CD wrong of 1,000 rhythm guitar licks, take a loop, and then loop it. And everybody was into loops music then, and hip-hop was really becoming a thing then, and it was all loops, all little small loops. So that just killed it off, really. I, I really... Came into my own about the, t the same time that, uh, you know, studio session musicians were becoming a thing of the past. It, and, unless you're a singer, and a singer, um, it was quite difficult to nick things off of CD-ROMs. You really need a singer to do backing vocals. You needed to hire a person. But uh, guitarists, it just killed it off. A bit like this string synthesizer killed off the um, the the session scene for orchestral string musicians uh, in, in the 80s as well. Was this the time when you become a funkster or was that later? What, what, what intergalactic fluoro funkster? Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, the, the Ute, uh, when I was playing with Ute, uh, I, uh, at the same time I was writing trance music. So... Uh, I was on tour in Australia with that band and I, I, I met some guys that were into trance music and I played them some of the stuff that I was uh, making in my home studio and they were really into it. You know, it was some of the early Cosmosis stuff actually. And uh, so, 
they overlapped when I was playing in Luke, or you, I was also playing in, uh, in the Cosmosis Project, me and Jess were uh, recording with that. And then after a while, I, I got more interested in the electronic uh, and, the, and the trance stuff, much more interested, actually. So uh, I left that behind and then got on with the focus more on the electronics. There are funk influences in your in your trance music. You can hear that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that the the there's a bit of a problem with trance music these days in that it it only refers to itself. In that, the, the references that people use when they get inspired to make trance music is other trance music, and the narrower and narrower focus it gets, it all becomes the same track <laughs> because no one's bringing in any influences from outside of the genre so the genre gets narrower and narrower there used to be a band uh in the i think it was the 80s or maybe even late 70s called pop will eat itself yeah i i i never ever heard any of their music that they ever did but the the name always stuck with me because i thought it was a really clever name because it, it was referring to that very same thing was that if it pop music refers to pop music as an influence, then it becomes narrow and it, it, it will eat itself. It will just become, you know, like a, a snake swallowing its tail and gets smaller and smaller. Yep. So was your introduction to trance music or electronic music in general uh, through meeting other musicians who were already more kind of versed in it or, or more into it? So like you mentioned youth and... Uh, maybe other uh, musicians who, who you played together with, or, or how can you recall what, what was your first kind of uh, rave or, or kind of a party that, that really hit you and, and uh, pulled you in to, to, the, to electronic music? Well, I think, it's, it's, I think the first influence was my brother. My brother at the time was a real gym junkie. He used to go down the gym pump all that time. And they used to play music at the gym. And he, he used to say to me, well, you should really check this music out. It's really awesome. Uh, uh, this, you know, all this, um, uh, like, it was acid music at the time. Mm -hmm. It was, I don't know, was it, was it mid 80s or, or was, no, 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 it was probably late 90s. No, no, sorry, late 80s, 18, mm -hmm. 1991. So, and uh, and he, he brought him a couple of cassette tapes and played them some. And I said, that's not music, that's just computer generated nonsense. You know, mm -hmm. I had a bit of a sad attitude at the time, you know, because I was a, a, a musician, I was used to playing with other human beings. That's music, but stuff made with computers is not music. You know? <laughs> and uh, he played me a, a, a few times, and after a while, I thought, well, actually, this is really interesting. Um, and I, I now recognise a lot of it was kind of early hard floor. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's a 101 doing a bass line, a, a 909 uh, machine, and a 303 just squawking away. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what the hell is they making that noise? That's so weird. You know, it's 303. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so he kind of opened my eyes, opened my eyes to it. But I still didn't quite get it. So I, I, I thought it was interesting and weird. But I didn't get the doom, 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 doom all the way through. What was that? And then I went out to a club once um, in London. Some some mates said, hey, we're going to go out to London and go to SW1, this club. So I said, yeah, sure. So I... Um, I went to this, suffice to say that I went to this club <laughs> and I spent all night dancing and uh, I suddenly got the 
the massive heat drums and you know the big pumping sound system and uh yeah so that's that was my introduction and i thought oh god I get it now you know <laughs> that, that i stayed up all night as you do clubbing and then in the morning i still cruising on no i i wrote a track on my little uh, my little in my little studio just using a drum machine like a dance music track first one i ever wrote like that night i hadn't even slept i was like so inspired by it so uh, yeah and and then then um, a little bit later on uh i was started to make so i started to make this kind of music dance music you know i got got what the kick drum and the bass line was all about and then uh um I was making with a friend of mine lived on the other side of the small town I used to live. Uh, he was, uh, I was making kind of uh, a cross between early trance or trancey stuff and house because he was into house. So we were making this stuff. He had a sampler and uh, his mate that he used to make music with uh, said to me, do you know what you, you, you really should meet, my mate Jeremy, because he re likes that weird music that you're into as well, because I was you know, more into the trancey stuff. And uh, he introduced me to Jess, who lived, lived a little quite close to me. And uh, by that time, I, I'd heard uh, some of the early Dragonfly records, first releases like Mandragora and uh, a few of the uh, like early Man With No Name. And uh, when I met Jez, he actually had some of these records. Mm -hmm. I put one of like a, a cassette tape. But he actually had the vinyls, and he knew this record shop in London. This little tiny record shop that was selling all this weird music. You know, hardly when I say all this weird music, there was hardly any bit about. And uh, so he had uh, a, a small collection of early Dragonfly records and a few other, uh, one or two early Tip releases as well. So and suddenly we were just both onto this. Thing. What is this really? Where where can we find some more music like this? And then, and then we started finding out there's um, th through Jez actually. Jez had a mate that went to a party. Uh, it's an early tip party he went to, and then an early dragonfly party as well. These underground parties with these punch bowls with these odd concoctions of liquid that you <laughs> think at the door, and uh, you know nobody knew about them. And you got this tiny little flyer, a little fluoro flyer. Oh, look, there's one tonight, you know. So, uh, so we went to a, a couple of those, and then you know, mind blown. And then uh, you know, it, it just snowballed from there. Then we just got mad, you know, just always spent all the time trying to make better trance music, you know. Yeah, and and so so we, so we began to meet some people and get, got onto the scene there, and found a whole bunch of weirdo hippies that liked all this weird music and stayed up all night dancing to it you know <laughs> so, yeah it was, it was good fun what, what was in the music that uh attracted you the most because there was a lot of other early electronic music styles back then big beat acid house the old school techno what what is in this type of music that that you said this is what i need to do and, and what's the reason behind that yeah that's a good question it, it's uh it's difficult to nail down really but it it just appealed to me. Uh, one thing, it didn't sound like any other music. It really didn't. It was like a completely new genre. Uh, it had uh, melodic elements, which, which was nice, and it was symphonic in a way. Uh, it's kind of melodic. And, and also it had a lot of, um, it was very trippy. In other words, you know, 
come from a musical background, you couldn't really separate the melody from the harmony. And the, uh, uh, it was, because it was, there was a lot of delay going on, a lot of, a lot of rhythmic delay and a lot of shorter sweeping, which is like changing your different frequencies throughout each note. So it gave it, it, it did not sound like and was not made like normal music. So, the, the novelty of it, for one thing, attracted me, but I liked it, it just the sound of it appealed to me, you know. It, it's, you know, spoke to me, it is, that awful cliche. So, when you met Jazz, was he already uh, into music making, or he was more like a record collector? Was, uh, was uh, the whole Cosmosis project uh, started out as your uh, initial tracks or or did you sat down together at one point and said yeah we should make this kind of music and and start doing this well i had a small studio jess didn't have a studio but he was a musician mm -hmm. he's very gifted musician actually jess he got a scholarship to the yehudi menuhin school as a cellist he's the mm. superb uh classical musician as was his father and his mother, who were extremely high-level classical musicians. But uh, I think Jez rebelled somewhat because he, 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 he bought a guitar, you know, <laughs> oh my God, a guitar, electric guitar, you know, and uh, he was listening to, you know, this kind of trance music. Um, but he didn't have a studio, and uh, well, well, but his enthusiasm for the music was just overwhelming, and uh, combined with my uh, enthusiasm for it, we said, Great, let's get to it. Let's come, let's make some more, let's make some of this shit, you know. <laughs> uh, that's that's what we did, you know. And we uh, went shopping around and buying crappy old analog synths and anything we could get our hands on to plug it all together. And this uh, combined with my bits and pieces. I had an Atari computer at the time. Yeah, yeah, it was, it had a really big memory of one megabyte yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was the super version <laughs> my 12 to 1024 yes like, you know the screen about that big <laughs> this tiny little thing but and and uh, a, a copy of uh cubase one for pc that was the main sequencer that i guess no the cubase one for pc was after i got a pc but yeah i had atari uh cubase go on mm -hmm. So that was that was your main sequencer, basically, then, right? At the time, yes. Soon after that, at, at the time when I met Jazz, yeah. But soon after that, I got a PC, and uh, I, I was it sixteen megabytes of RAM it had. So it's like awesome, totally awesome. And, it, and I put a sampler card into it, which had uh, four outputs, and a hard disk recording facilities which had t two outputs what else yeah and, and it was a 486 dx yeah so not exactly a powerful computer but pretty awesome for the time yeah i mean it's uh the time when the whole kind of recording home recording studios became uh, a new thing right exactly. i mean exactly it was just the crossover point where where you could do midi recording at home but you you couldn't really do disc recording, so it was it was around 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 that point where it was still before proper decent disc recording. But I could do stereo recording, so we could bounce, we could mix the track live onto a DAT, dump the DAT onto a two into a two track editor, and then we could 
edit in the two track. We couldn't do any more than that. We could just edit the two track. So that was the facility we had on the, on the first record. Why did you call the, the project Cosmosis? Where did its name come from? I can't. Oh, I remember. Uh, I think Jez came up with that actually. Yeah, he definitely did. Uh, we we said we uh, we, we had, did we have a gig already at that time? I think we might have had a gig booked already. No, 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 no. Of course not. No, no, no. We didn't. That was a bit later. No, uh, we said we got to call this project something. Let's have a brainstorm. Any old get a pen and paper. We list all the names quickly without thinking about it. So we just spewed out about thirty options, and we looked at them. We said, uh, yeah. That one, we, we both agree Cosmosis is, is good. I think he came up with the that word. Yeah, so it was Jez that named uh, Cosmosis, Cosmosis, actually. Um, ironically, we used to be, uh, we decided to set out as a production company called Laughing Buddha Music Productions, and we were going to have Cosmosis as one of the acts. Uh, and it was, my name was Laughing Buddha, uh, music productions <laughs> but uh, in the end Jez ended up using the name Laughing Buddha and I ended up using the name Cosmos so we kind of named each other if you know what I mean yes but for a while you both worked on both projects right so you had a time when you were releasing uh, tracks under the name Laughing Buddha as well uh, but for different labels right that's right yeah because when we signed Transient uh, we didn't realize it at the time because we were a bit dumb and naive. Uh, but when it meant that we couldn't use the name Cosmosis to, to release other music with other labels because it was in contract. Uh, so we just, well, all right, well, if we release a tip, we'll call it Laughing Buddha then. You know, uh, <laughs> that, that, that was our way of circumventing the uh, restrictions imposed on us. EP was the Cannabinoid. That's right. Um, um, looking back on that three-track uh, EP, what are your most cherished memories? Twenty years ago, ago actually. Yeah, it's it's got a long time ago, isn't it? I, I, I probably was uh, bear in mind that we were pretty active on going to these very underground parties in London at the time in these dodgy old warehouses with the same people, the same weirdos, and uh, we. We walked into uh, uh, Return to the Source. I remember going into Return to the Source. It was a great club to go to at the time. And we, as we walked in, me and Jess, Cannabinoid was playing, and the whole floor was going bananas. I thought, yes, this is good. This is our new record that we released, and it's people are going bananas. Also, there was a dragonfly party when, when I remember being on the dance floor and... Uh, was Dante Figura on the other side? I think it was. Was it? Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's one of the the tracks from the uh, that one, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we were in this Dragonfly party and the DJ put on Dante Figura on the intro and people just went bananas and they were like, wow, this is great. Yeah, so those kind of things are, are golden memories, you know, when you, when you have, uh, when you worked really hard on something and then you see the result of it on, on people on the floor. And, yeah, uh, it's even better than you expected. Something I always wanted to know: the cannabinoid title. So it's someone who is paranoid of cannabis, or he's paranoid, paranoid of the cannabis, so he doesn't want to take it, or it's because he became paranoid because of the consumption. 
<laughs> and it's a fun title. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it's it's silly, you know how far I can make and draw my mind. Um, yeah. It's it, it's just a bit of fun. Yeah. Because, yeah. because let's face it, that is what happens a lot. If someone gets a bit stoned, they get a bit paranoid. Yeah. Do you already playing live after this release? Yes. Uh, in fact, I think. I'm not sure whether it was after we released that or maybe even before it came out, but uh, um, maybe it was after, I can't remember. But we we got a, a call from Return to the Source um, saying, can you play a live show? And uh, this at the time was the biggest club in uh, Goa Club. It had started to explode, actually, this underground party scene. And it was, suddenly it became this... Um, uh, was it a monthly event? I think it was a monthly event at that time, and it was packed, and it was a really good vibe and a great place. And um, they asked us, hey, can you play a gig? They phoned us up when I was at the studio and uh, with Jez. And uh, I said to Jez, I put her on the phone, I said, Jez, they want us to play a live gig. <laughs> He's like, great, but how do we do it? I said, I don't know. And I said, uh, can you play a live gig on the uh, 16th of September? Yeah, sure. No, no, no problem. Yeah, yeah. How much? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, fine. I said, yes, they want to play this. Blah, 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 blah. For this. Great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, on the 16th. No problem. I see you. You know, put down. And then we thought, fuck, how are we going to play a live gig? <laughs> Shit. You know, um, so, you know, that that's that's how that happened. We said yes to the gig before we even knew how, how before we'd ever played a gig. You know? So yeah, yeah, we do that. How the fuck do you do it? So uh, in the end, we ended up. Uh, I was playing a bit of live guitar. We dragged a synthesizer along, a Juno, to make a few noises, uh, and uh, played pretty much uh, the, the tunes off of that, and just some, did some funny noises in between with a, a, you know some intros. Stuff with guitar and uh, lots of delay and all that. Yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, you also mentioned the Dance the Figures was uh, it has some guitar samples in it. I don't know how prevalent that already was in in Goa trance at the time. I've we were trying to come up with a few tracks that had guitar in them, but it was it sounded a little bit different than than what uh, what other people were doing at the time with with that when it comes to guitar samples, I guess. So. Uh, how how did you do the track and uh, did you f try to kind of emulate some kind of a sound or was it like like yeah I'm a guitarist I will put guitar into a Gotrans track what what was the idea behind Listen, that? second really uh, I don't remember there being a guitar in any of the trance tracks that we heard but you know guitars in mine mine was just oh we can use that because it's I can play it and it's it's hanging around. Why not? So do a kind of rocky version. Why not? So I can't remember any other tracks. I, don't, I, I doubt whether it was the first track with the guitar in it, but um, to a first trance track with the guitar in it, I really don't know. But um, yeah, I, I just just set the amp up, you know, old school with a mic <laughs> and uh, just recorded that riff. Uh, and then just chucked it in the, in the little song. We had, uh, I think, 10 meg of sample memory, so mm -hmm. put it in there and just triggered it from there. 
Oh, uh, yeah, there's some feedback bits in there that I did just turn the amps to get it feeding back and uh, recorded a bit of that and put it in the track. Yeah, and, and later you created a different version of that track, right? The In Your Face Part 2, which is kind of like the same melody or same idea, right? Yeah, it's the same sample, actually. Yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, I, I kind of remixed it. Um, I think that... Was that on a B-side somewhere or, or, or on a vinyl? I can't remember where it came out, but uh, yeah, I remember doing that. Yeah, I do remember it came out on some of the compilations uh, around the time. But yeah, before we get there, I think we can talk a little bit more about the first album, actually. So you had a couple of uh, LPs. I think I think there, there were two, two EPs, as they were called at the time, right? Uh, like the singles, so to say that you released before the album, right? Or, so that was the Cannabinoid EP and then was Deus as well? Or was it already after the, the album came out? No, I think Deus was before. And then there was also the one with um, Sani Acid as well, that release. Oh yeah, 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 indeed. And there might have been another one, I think. God. A Gift of the Gods maybe as well, yeah. Yeah. Um. That's right, yeah. Uh, we, we released a fair few vinyls on uh, Transient. I think Karma came out under Laughing Buddha around that. Yeah. That's it. But, uh, yeah, what's, what do you want to know about that? So, basically, the first album was a kind of a collection of, of those earlier releases, right? Or or how, how did you decide that you wanted to have, have this on an, on an album? Well... <laughs> The thing was, in those days, you actually used to get paid for for releasing records. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's disappeared. But that's how it used to be. Uh, we actually used to get quite well paid when we used to uh, release a single. We didn't sell that many singles, but you used to get quite a large proportion of the money of that the album or the EP cost paid to you. Not only did you get paid per sale by the record company, but we also got MCPS, Mechanical Royalties, and also uh, royalties from any play on radios as well, because we were both members of the Performing Rights Society and we registered each of the works, so we still actually get paid for that. It's occasionally only, you know, a couple of quid, but I get statements where that's been played in some random place in... Bulgaria or radio or something like that. <laughs> I get thrupence for each, you know, and they will add up. But uh, the, the point was that uh, I just want to explain something about selling records. Right. So we released, uh, let's say, Gift of the Gods. It came out as a, on one side of the single. We got paid quite reasonably well, you know, for that. Uh, then it got put on a compilation. And each compilation it got put on, we got paid, I don't know, 300 quid. Let's call it 900 quid in today's money, you know, for, for, for putting uh, uh, pounds, 900 euros, let's say, yeah. split between us. That's all right. For, it just got put in another compilation. It got put on to Destination Goa or mm-hmm. to blah, 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 you know, and blah, 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 big German compilation or whatever. Yeah, and also the Return to the Source compilations as well. We mentioned. Exactly. So each time it got put on one, we'd get paid each time it went on to one of those. And then we put it on the album 
and then we, you know, got paid for that because we sold the album. And then, actually, in 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 the case of Gift, Gift of the Gods, it got used in this awful, crappy Hollywood mu- movie. But it was a Hollywood movie, and they wanted, I think, twenty eight seconds of it used in in a scene in Nine and a Half Weeks Two with Mickey Rourke, which is it's a oh, <laughs> it's a documentary <laughs> film. It really is. <laughs> it's just terrible. It's, you know, like the worst kind of thing when they have a reasonably successful film and they make a terrible sequel. Anyway, that wasn't the point. The point was we got paid big bucks for that. So this is like one record. You get paid here, you get paid for the singles, you get paid for the compilations, you get paid for the album, and you got paid for, you know, if we're going on a, it's part of a film track. So, uh, but all sadly, all of that's disappeared. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, that, that was how it used to work back then. And when you had enough tracks, you decided that now it's time for the album or there were contractual obligations... How did that I mean, come it, together? Well, we we had set out to write an album, me and Jez. What we we got when we got a deal with Transient, it was like two singles on an album, something like that. You know that they were obliged to do. We ended up doing more than, or more than two singles. Well, well more than that. But uh, so you know, we set out to do to, to write an album. And we released a few of the tracks singly, and then we released some of the tracks from the album as part of singles or EPs before they went on the album. So we had sat, set out to do an album, and then the next track, uh, next time after that, uh, I then got made another contract with Transient to make Synergy, purchased me, um, and just made a, you know, a deal with whichever albums... Uh, record label he used after that you know so i mean well, we had set out to write to write cosmology as an album yes well cosmology actually well, what it was we just sat sit down to make music do you like to make music so that's what we're into so however it came out was however it came out but we we had specifically sat down with trans and say yeah we're going to do an album and uh we were then going to produce eight or nine tracks to make the album and um, funny enough, we we did sit down to make that an album. So, if we even had a, a kind of basic plan, the last track is a reprise of of all the other albums, all, all the other tracks. It's got bits of samples of all of the other tracks, all in the same track at the end, which is called uh, it's a, that chill out track at the end, afterglow. But you know, we, we kind of planned it so it'll build up, build up, build up, build up, and then it'll have this track and that track, then it'll kind of tail off. So we've kind of built up the. So you know, in other words, this probably isn't given much consideration these days because people just do tracks, and they don't even think of albums. But when I was growing up and jazz as well, because he's a bit of an old fart as well by this time, <laughs> we used to listen to albums. He used to, he used to go in a darkened room, smoke a split, and listen to a whole album <laughs> or two. And the whole thing was an experience. You know, the whole thing, not just tracks. So. We did approach uh, Synergy in that way to make it an album that people would listen to the whole thing. And um, regarding cosmology, where did the bag from that you used for the cover came from? That is the very talented Nagma, uh, who is Jez's wife. Um, girlfriend at the time, She's a, she was an art student, and she painted that on a really big, I don't know, let me see, it's about mm, two and a half metre by two and a half metre 
black canvas and she painted it under fluoro lights. Um, and it's actually three-dimensional. In other words, some of those the bits of it come out at, physically out, out in front of the painting. And then we had a photographer come and put black lights on, set up a camera and shoot it just on the photograph. Uh, of that and that used to hang in the studio actually and we used to work under fluoro lights with such <laughs> fluoro freaks at the time we could only work under fluoro lights with joysticks happening you know <laughs> nag shampoo joysticks and uh black light you know to, to get the vibe and it does make a difference to this day i can't l hear it properly if i work in a bright room i mean when i'm working here i, I don't have these lights on it has to be dim I think that's because your sight is your dominant sense. And if it's bright and you can see, that takes over. Whereas with I notice with me, if I have the lights dimmer, my eye my ears can hear better. It's a strange thing, but I cannot work in, in bright lights on music. I mean, yeah, I work on anything else, but uh if I'm doing music, it has to be uh dull lighting. It fo helps focus my auditory sense, stops my uh, visual sense dominating. Fanny Acid is my all-time one of my all-time favorite core trance tracks. Can you tell a little secret about that? Um, what do I remember about? I I love the the, the bass. Uh, there's there's a like a uh, a bass station riff at the beginning. Not not a lot, like a three three thing, but uh, just a kind of sawway thing. Jazz made that particular riff right at the beginning. Was it got a bit of portamento, little sliding thing. I love that. <laughs> um, what can I say, really? Uh, it's actually me babbling on in the sample in, in the middle, <laughs> babbling on about red lights. Um, Sunny Acid, uh, the title, uh, Sunny Acid, uh, there's a... I used to know a lot of the time, a lot of people that were into Bhag Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, uh, who was, was a yeah, Indian guru uh, type. Um, and I used to know loads of people in that kind of community. And they were called Sanyasins. And uh, so that became Sanyasid, the, the track, <laughs> that, that track. Uh, but yeah, uh, that that's all I can say about it. I don't remember much else about it, really, that I can say. Which one is your favourite? Which one what? Triumph of the album. Well, on that particular album, I, I like Afterglow, actually. Uh, I also like um, Gift of the Gods. I, I, I'd i say it's, it's probably my favourite one. It is full on, though. You know, I have to be in the right mood for it. Uh, what else is on there? Sanyasid, uh, Key to the Universe, I like as well. And uh, Morphic Resonance is also on that album. And I checked that that's your most released album. It appeared on more than 10 compilations. What, that particular track? Yeah. Funnily enough, I was listening uh, to a podcast with Ian McGilchrist and uh, Rupert Sheldrake. Hmm. Rupert Sheldrake is the, uh, the, the guy that came up with the idea of Morphic Resonance. And uh, just listened to that a couple of days ago. But yeah, he's, I don't know whether you know he's a bit of a, he's a scientist, but he's a uh, heretical scientist. Yeah. He's not fully scientific material, not, not a scientific materialist. He postulates that there are other things that 
we can't quite measure their causing phenomena. Fascinating bloke. But so uh, yeah, morphic resonance, uh, that, that was, that's named after one of his concepts. But yeah, that, that's, I, I played I play that out when I play retro sets. I'm surprised at how well that track works. It's quite simple. It's quite a simple thing, and uh, it just kind of bleeps on. And then it gets, you know, 303 up halfway through. Uh, but it's, it, it's, it's very simple, but it really is a very effective track. Yeah. I do speed it up a bit, though, for today's dance floors. So how, how was uh, touring uh, with those uh, tracks back then, maybe compared to today's crowds? I mean, there was a time uh, after the 90s, like in the early 2000s or, or mid-2000s, when, when this kind of style was, was completely gone or it seemed that there was no... Uh, no need for it anymore or no uh, uh, people were not not many people were into it so to say there was a small strong crowd that that was still following this kind of uh, old school Goa trend style but uh, now it's returning and and how do you see is it like a different reaction you get from the crowds uh, are like people uh, reacting to it as uh, as they were back in the 90s when they heard it heard them first and and how does it uh uh feel playing those tracks again uh, compared to when you played them first uh, when you went out on a tour with those tracks hmm. well it depends on the party um because in the early days of the early parties i don't want to sound like yeah, too much of a in the old days, you know, but but uh, there was a certain how do you, how do you call it a certain vibe, a certain uh, um, way of partying that was uh, during those days that set it apart from you know going to a house party or, or you know, the, the other stuff, which was that people used to um, it was a kind of joyful time. People still really enjoy the music, and it was very much a celebratory thing. It wasn't so much of a uh, let's get out of it and be, although there was plenty of that going on, but it wasn't about, it wasn't quite so aggressive. It was quite more, more of a joyful, dancey celebration. And that, and, and, and that people seemed to take responsibility for that, to, for making the party vibe, you know. People seem to realise that it was up to them to create a party, as opposed to going on to a party and going, "Okay, do it to me." You know, mm -hmm. is this a good party or isn't it? You know, rather than that, it's like I'm responsible for creating the vibe. So there was more of that around. And so um, what I noticed with, let's take for example that party uh, that you were uh, stage managing at, uh, Peter. Uh, what did you call it again? Uh, Apsara, like uh, in hung Hungary, it was... Uh... That vibe there was, uh, interestingly enough, was very much the same kind of vibe that it used to be back in those days. So uh, it, it, it's not necessarily the music, it's the attitude towards creating a vibe. Uh, and, and oddly enough, it seemed to have survived all those, all those years, you know, that particular strain of partying seemed to have somehow uh, survived over the years and it still exists. Um, so, but that, 
the vibe at that that party Absara, was very much the old school vibe people going having fun you know like really really kicking off having a good time and people deliberately putting energy into making it a good a good a good vibe on the dance floor so um yeah so it depends on the party but generally at the old old school events you generally generally speak tend to get more of that people creating a good time you know that they have to create the vibe rather than having the vibe done to them and being disappointed because it didn't happen uh, back in the day how were these tours actually uh, there was no internet how did you organize going i know you played a lot in the uh, far east i think you also got to goa how did it happen without all these modern tools that we are used to nowadays and also carrying the equipment i mean probably you had more stuff to carry around like synthesizers and sequencers and whatnot so how how did you guys manage back then well when it came to india no one took any equipment to india because it's just it's <laughs> dusty it gets stolen or it's too hot you know so people used to take that and that that's what me and jez did uh that's when, when, when we played in india and go but um if it was a gig in France or whatever, in the early days, we used to take a guitar and a rack thing with a compressor and, you know, some other rack stuff in it and a keyboard case and all that. But we soon stopped doing that because it was just, you know, it was just too much. Uh, I remember uh, playing a party in France and taking all that stuff and just thinking, this is just a complete pain in the ass. And being at airports and getting SKB cases, rack cases. So we gave all that up. And then it, it because it, you could then just hire, you get the promoter to hire a keyboard uh, or, or, or a few bits of equipment. But mostly it was uh, pre-recorded. You know, it, it just became the thing to do to pre-record stuff and uh, play either mi new mixes of stuff that you've done or slightly different mixes or just play your mixes from a DAP or from CD. You know, that, that's the reality of it. Um, because trance music is not made live, in other words, it's a sequencer anyway, there's not a whole, you know, the, the, the paradigm of band is a bit misplaced. If you've got a bass guitar, drums and a singer, and they go into a, a rock and roll recording studio and they record it, them playing live and release it as a record, then you kind of expect them to go and recreate that thing when you go and see them live. But if music is a whole bunch of sequences and then you press go, record it, then stop, taking that equipment to, and recreating that whole thing is just a complete waste of time. It's why? No, and, and no one cares because it's a party and people don't care about what you're doing on stage because they're partying. Well, they should be because it's, a, it's not about, it's not so much an audience watching thing is a, is a participatory thing so those kind of two paradigms somehow got a bit mixed up um, um having said that i i do tend to prefer to have at least one live element i.e guitar a bit of synth squi squiggling or whatever going on because it it adds a bit of risk and it makes something a bit different and it stops me from getting bored when i'm playing live because i'm doing something um and with the case of the guitar, it's a, it's very much a, it's a performance tool, really, a guitar. You know, just put a guitar on, people go, yay! 
It's like, I haven't played anything yet. Because <laughs> they see a guitar, they think, yeah, rock, or, or, or something. I don't know what it is. But... Um, so that's what I have to say about that. Has it become easier uh, to tour like that? I guess it's it's now a bit different than back in those days. As you mentioned, you're not you don't have to carry around so so many equipment and and so different uh, so many stuff. But many people did back then either. I mean, unless you're talking about let's say Total Eclipse or in like the really early days, or uh, maybe Ood or a few other people that were like, no, we've got to take. The whole studio with all five of us with all the equipment and set up and play you know um there was a few people that were real sticklers and and good on them for doing it but the the practical considerations the things that could go wrong you know there's equipment to get lost and stolen or whatever it was just yeah. it's a massive amount of risk for like no real gain um because as i said people don't care yeah, but there was an emphasis on like bringing something new each time, right? Like uh, as you mentioned, to bring a new mix of the track or or bring a the newest track to a party. So so were you kind of trying to to push the new music all the time when you were invited, or was it something the the organizers expected to to do uh, for musicians? Or I mean, what me and Jess would do, or I would do, is I would just play out. Uh, tracks, uh, you know, as well as the tracks that people expected me to play, really? they wanted me to play, that they would have been pissed off if I didn't play. <laughs> then I would play tracks that I was working on that I finished, and I'd play them out and go, oh, yeah, that works, that works. Oh, that, that is a bit long. So I'd make notes and go, okay, cut those eight bars out. You know, so I'd test, test things. Um you know, and always be excited to play new stuff out. Uh, so tracks on the go, or 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 tracks that were finished, but they needed to be played out a few times to see where it worked, where it doesn't work. You know, because that's the best feedback you can get. It's just seeing the react, watching the reaction. It's very easy to tell if it sections too long. I'm making it usually do in the studio these days, but sometimes you you do a track, you think, oh, that's great, and you play it, and you think, oh no, there's too much. This eight bars is just the excitement just drops off on the dance floor a little bit that I could just edit that out and go, go back and redo it so it's useful to play stuff out from that point of view so yeah there were some new tracks but most of the time it's tracks that people want to hear it's, you know, it was the, the, the new element was the new tracks or tracks that were you mentioned that uh, you had two separate projects so that you can accommodate the TIP uh, record label um, did you have any conscious decision regarding the Laughing Buddha sound, or it, they could work as composers? Yeah, yes. yeah it, I mean, be, because we were going to release, because we released uh, some things with Tip, and also uh, Return to the Source with the Laughing Buddha track, um, it was a conscious decision to make it a little bit more psychedelic, as we saw it. So those, those tracks were a little bit more leading towards perhaps slightly, slightly less, less melodic, slightly a, bit more, a little more psychedelic, whatever that means. But, you know, a little bit more abstract sometimes, a little bit less melodic. So like that, that was the basic kind of, if there was a difference, um, then, then that was it. 
Why did you split in 97? Well, Jess had a different focus at the time. He was, uh, he was living with his girlfriend on the other side of London. It was becoming difficult for me to drive over there. And I wanted to just get on and make music. Um, Where were you living at the time? I was living in uh, West London. He was living in North oh. London. Okay. It's a long, long time to drive because of the traffic. Well, it's terrible for driving. <laughs> it's too large. I try to avoid it whenever I can, driving traffic. Thankfully, I don't live anywhere near London now, so it's not a Stay tuned for part two of this interview in the next episode. Thanks for listening, people. We compiled a playlist of all the music mentioned in this episode that you can listen to on Spotify and Apple Music. The link is in the show notes. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit the like button and be sure to subscribe for more. If you have any ideas, questions, leave a comment or message us on Facebook or Instagram. Or message us on Facebook or Instagram.